If you have a Bible, please open it to Exodus chapter 12. We'll be reading very soon from the 29th verse of that chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pocket in the pew in front of you, and you can find Exodus 12, 28, or 29, excuse me, on page 51 of that Bible. One of the more difficult things that we should be seeking to do as we study history, what happens to people in history and their reactions to it is to have empathy for them, to share something of the emotions and thus the knowledge of the people who go through these events. Sometimes we use the old adage, you had to be there, when there's a joke that just kind of doesn't work, when we try to explain some sort of humorous event that happened in us and we find it really funny and people look at us like we're, well, we're quite stupid and we say, well, you you had to be there, probably not, but nevertheless. When it comes to history, quite often, to understand how people react to things, to understand why it was wondrous for them or difficult for them, you kind of had to be there. It's hard to know what being in a siege would be like for modern people. Just having nothing in our lives that we would possibly compare it to. What is real starvation look like? Not, I missed lunch today and I'm starving. I haven't eaten in weeks starving. What does it look like to have foreign hordes run through your town and to fear for the lives not only of you but of your family? This week, I, I was thinking of the, the brilliant story of Louis Zamperini, if you don't know who that is. famous book by the name of Unbroken was written about him. He was an Olympic athlete, uh, a level athlete at the very least, when World War II broke out and he was drafted and went into the service. It is said that while he was stationed in Hawaii, he ran a four-minute, 12-second mile, sub-12-second at the very least, which was good at the time. It was fantastic at the time. The four-minute mile hadn't been broken, and so that would have put him on on pace to be at least silver medal in the Olympics. But there's something even more impressive about that. He ran that on sand. He probably, if not for World War II, would have been the first person to run a sub-four-minute mile. Nevertheless, he was thrown into the service. Louis was on a plane, and his plane eventually was going to be shot down. He would spend 47 days adrift at sea, which is an amazing feat in and of itself to keep yourself alive for 47 days on the sea with absolutely nothing. They fought off sharks with oars. They caught two albatrosses, which is just fantastic. And eventually they found land, thinking that they were going to be saved and found out that really they had just gone from the pan into the fire as they were captured by Japanese soldiers and put into Japanese prisons where he would be tortured until the end of the war. It's got to be difficult for any of us to understand what the end of the war would have looked like for Louis, to think that that trial is over, not only being adrift at sea, but for years being tortured, knowing that his family wouldn't know if he was alive or dead, probably thinking that he was dead, probably told that he was dead, not knowing if he was going to live through the experience, not knowing how long he could physically hold up through the experience to then be told, no, you're, you're good, you can go home. What it must have been like to actually put his feet in Hawaii, on U.S. soil, and then after that, back in California, his homeland. We can sympathize with some of that. We, we can project 
right? We've gone through difficulties. There are things in your life that you've longed for, you, you hated waiting for, you know, the line at McDonald's, right? You, you waited to be married. You wait for the end of school. You wait for your first child. You wait for the end of anything to then begin a new chapter in your life. There are things that you wait for, but man, we, we don't know what it was like for Louis to think of the freedom he must have felt. The same must be said for these events in the book of Exodus. As long as the Israelites could possibly remember, they, their parents, their grandparents, had been slaves to the Egyptians. And one night, a knock on the door comes. They open and there is an Egyptian standing there and all they say is, get out. You're gone. We don't want you here. We don't want you in our country. We want you to leave. No time to pack. No time to think. There's only time to thank God Take some jewelry and clothing from the Egyptians who are more than happy to give them to you so that you will leave. Back, pack up your unbaked, unrisen bread and get on the road. The elation they must have felt is quite honestly hard for us to understand. Just like with Louis, we just haven't gone through that. But we can get a sense of it. Let us go then to the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 29 through 13, 16, and read of what happens to the Israelites here and see the victory that they have gained over the Egyptians through the mighty hand of God and see if we can understand something of their emotion and joy. Read with me if you would, beginning in verse 29. At midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor inside of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot beside women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went up out of the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt so this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. 
And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you, and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, that he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. On that day, and on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey. You shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from, the year, from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as far as he swore as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord all that opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or your frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord has brought us out of Egypt." This is the word of our God. What a great victory the Lord has wrought for his people here. Let us speak of what that victory actually is today. First, it is a victory over enemies. It's a victory over enemies. It's interesting, given the immense buildup to this point, we, we know we've been running through plagues and wonders and signs and miracles to get to this point. We know that something great and devastating has been coming. We have it hinted at before. And then when we're right at the, the precipice of it, Exodus sort of slows down to draw on the drama. 
So we have instructions about the Passover and what's going to happen before we actually get what happens. It's almost like they're, they're building up the tension, building up the drama, and then Scripture just skips over it. A handful of verses, and, and the whole event is over. Nevertheless, what happens is precisely what God said would happen. There is desperation and there's devastation in the cries of the Egyptians wailing that is heard directly across the land, not just geographically, but temporally through the centuries, the cries of the Egyptians over their firstborn. While we read of Pharaoh's response first, I like the response of the people because it's implied in these verses, especially in verse 33, that the Egyptians had made up their mind even before Pharaoh got a chance to act. You'll notice that it's not Moses and Aaron that go back to the people and say to Moses and Aaron and say to the people, listen, Pharaoh has issued a declaration that we can go pack up your stuff so that we can get on the road. It is the Egyptians themselves who first make it out to the people and tell them to pack up and go. They were of the same mind with Pharaoh, even though they didn't know it. The idea in saying we shall all be dead is this. Listen, Pharaoh might be hemming and hawing over whether you guys should go. We've seen the devastation that has been wrought upon us. We have heard the cries as people woke up and found their firstborns dead in their beds. If we don't get you out of here, we are all going to die. Imagine what that would have been like for the Egyptians to do that. Pharaoh didn't order these issues, didn't issue these orders. He, he was not the one who said it. He, he did have the same mind, but the Egyptians seem to be acting on their own here. The idea is Listen, Pharaoh might be upset that we're doing this. This is the very thing that he seems like he didn't want to. We are committing treason by doing this, and maybe we'll die. But we would rather face Pharaoh than we would face Yahweh. Get out. That is really what it's all about anyway. The people of Egypt have learned some from this. God is more to be feared than the man who sits on the throne. This is really given given a place of prominency with that word urgent in verse 33. That word urgent is the same word that has been consistently translated as hardened when used of Pharaoh's heart, that Pharaoh strengthened himself. Pharaoh strengthened himself to not let the people go. But now the people are saying he might have strengthened his own will, but now our will is set. Our will is strengthened. You need to leave now. And if that means that we need to give you our clothes, our jewelry, our gold, and our silver, so be it. Just get out. Even so, they won't get in trouble with Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh sees eye to eye with them. Pharaoh capitulates on everything. Before, he had uttered a decisive no when asked for the people to leave. Here, he commands it. Go. Several times, go. Previously, he had a decisive no to all of the people leaving. Your youth are not going to leave with you. But here he says, all the people of Israel, go. He commands it. Previously, we were told that the people must serve the Egyptians by making bricks. Back in 113 and 14 again. So the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick. They served mortar and brick for the Egyptians. Here, he commands that they leave not to serve mortar and brick, but to serve the Lord. Previously, he gave a decisive no to flocks and herds going up with them. And here he commands it, take them all. It is a complete 
and utter capitulation. Even while Pharaoh is still stupidly trying to save face, he's acting like he's in command. Even asking for the silly blessing while he's commanding them to do stuff. I wonder if Moses didn't have a wry smile on his face. I remember it was, this was a tactic of probably me when I was a kid and certainly is of my children. You are not going to have ice cream tonight, friend. Dessert is out. That's fine. I didn't want dessert anyway. I'm sure you didn't, right? And Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's now saying, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not the loser here. I don't want you around. It's not you who's dissolving this relationship. It's me, right? He's just petulant and small. He still hasn't learned. It bodes poorly for the future, which we will come up to in just a minute. And by a minute, I mean a couple of weeks. This was, by the way, a complete and total declaration and that God had already made. This was exactly what God said was going to happen. The Israelites were not just going to be sitting and having a pleasant conversation with Pharaoh when he says, well, the time is, is short now. If you would, please exit. God said, my work upon him is going to be so heavy that he is going to drag you out by the cloak and throw you out. He will not allow you to leave. He will command you to leave. God won a complete and total surrender. Not some sort of partial surrender, a conditional surrender where each side got a, a little bit of what they wanted and gave up a little bit of what they wanted. God got everything that he demanded. It was complete and unconditional surrender. There were no conditions placed upon God. And all of the conditions that God placed upon Pharaoh, he got. It was a flawless victory. It's not just a flawless victory, though, for the Israelites. It is for us. This is a picture of us. This victory is ours. This victory is ours. Only our victory is more real than theirs ever could be. We are more than conquerors, the book of Revelation says, if we have faith in Jesus Christ. But you have to understand, it's easy to look around and feel like this is great in theory. It's great for Scripture to talk about us being more than conquerors. It's great for Scripture to speak like all this is going to work out in the end. It's great for us to read Revelation 22 and to say, that's a beautiful day then. But to live in the reality in which we live now, we don't feel like conquerors. It's not hard externally to look around and see the world around us dissolving in immorality. In laws, in our culture, in business practices, everywhere we turn, we see immorality after immorality after immorality. As it grows, we start to glimpse the promise of victory, which is held out for us so certainly in Scripture, more of a shadow than a reality, more of something along the lines of a hope than something that has truly been won and is assured on the cross. And even internally, we realize that we are still beset by sin, temptation. Everywhere we turn, there is another hurdle to overcome. Every day we wake up, there's another failure to absorb. We struggle. We get angry with ourselves, frustrated with others. We get depressed and we wonder if we will ever master our sin at all. We don't see the victory. The Egyptians and the Israelites didn't either until one moment happened. Don't be dismayed, friends. For one day the clouds will part. The Lord will descend. And the victory that has been won already will be manifested among us. 
For on that day, your sin and the wicked powers of the world will unconditionally, unconditionally surrender themselves to the might and the power of Christ our Lord. So fight, not for the victory, but because the victory has already been assured and won and will come as surely as God's mercies and the sun rise in the morning. As victory over enemies. But secondly, it is victory with recompense. It's victory with recompense. This is not a victory simply, as people might say, a moral victory, right? Egypt wasn't defeated with dignity. Egypt was just flat out beat. They were to be plundered. This is something that is somewhat overlooked, but it seems like it's really important in the story of Exodus because this is now the third time that this event has been mentioned. Back in 322, Moses has the idea introduced to him by God. God says there that each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and daughters, so shall you plunder the Egyptians. That's promised way back in chapter 3 before any of the miracles have happened. 11, chapter 11, we had the same promise. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, and every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. Here we have the actual event. The people look and they do it just as Moses asked, not with trepidation but with faith. Friend, give me your gold jewelry. And they were given favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Not that the Egyptians loved them. I think the idea is the Egyptians were ready to give them almost anything that they needed to get them on the road. They were scared witless. Nevertheless, the Lord gave them favor. It is a reward for victory in one sense, is what plundering is. It's just like the defeating and plundering of other nations. In a situation of unconditional surrender, you get to take what you want. There are differences here. Moses makes it clear that women would do the asking. Back in chapter 3, it's quite clear that women were the ones who were to lead in this way. They were the ones who were going to ask. And it's asking, right? It's not taking by force. There's a sense in which this is, this is a reward, but it's, it's more than that. It's not just the plundering in terms of military It's plundering in terms of God giving them favor. Many people who have commented on this think that this isn't just the Israelites taking what doesn't belong to them because they simply can, but taking something that had belonged to them that they were never actually given. They were taking back from wages that had never been paid to them for being slaves for hundreds and hundreds of years. Philo. These were necessary wages from those whom they had served for so long a time. Irenaeus said that this is recompense for their heavy servitude. Tertullian says this is some slight indemnification, a payment of damages not described as such, but compensation for their hire. Calvin says that these are spoils to those whom they had pillaged before. Hopkins What was rightfully their own might well be considered in lieu of their wages a reward for their servitude. They were being paid back for the labor that they had done but never been paid for. They had worked hard and the Egyptians had reaped the benefits of that. 
They had reaped monetary benefits. They had reaped national benefits. They had reaped military benefits from that. And here, in a brief moment, in some small fashion, were the Israelites being paid back for all that they had never gotten before. This is simply the fruit of their labor. Friends, you are called upon to turn your backs on the things of this world. You just are. Christ calls us to this. The New Testament continually calls us to this. But we're not stupid. There are many pleasures in this world, both to have and to aim for. The Lord really does want you to think carefully about your pursuit of those pleasures and the things that you want to do with your time and your money and your efforts. Where is indeed a good expenditure of our time and money? Where ought my treasure be laid up? If we can only think in this life of the return on our investment and how that return comes to us in this life only, then we have not truly lived in light of the kingdom of Christ. That works both for how we spend our money and how we spend our time. I understand that I'm probably about eight years late and that YOLO is out of favor now. But that is a persistent idea in almost every one of our minds. You only live once. If I don't get to experience this now, my kids don't get to experience these things now. If I don't spend this money now, if I don't buy this now, if I don't get this now, I'm, I'm going to, I only get to live once. What if I miss it? What if I, oh, I don't get to experience that? What if I don't get this thing that I seem to really want? What's going to happen? I'll tell you, nothing. It doesn't mean that just because you're an ascetic, you get blessed by God. But ask yourself, thinking about these things in light of God's kingdom, what is anyone going to miss by prioritizing God's kingdom and his goodness and his praise over the things of the world? Do you not think that you won't be rewarded for the labor that you've put in? Do you not understand the nature of faith and the grace of our God? Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. Not the rich, not the powerful, not the people who went out and took it carpe diem style. The very meek ones are those who are handed over the very kingdom of God. We are co-heirs with Christ, Paul says. There are blessings laid up for us that are incomparable to what we have here, says Peter. So we should lay up our treasure there. And don't be overly concerned with the things you can get here or the experiences that you may have here. Make the kingdom your priority and all these things will be added unto you. God rewards people for their labor. Bank on that. Third, this is a victory from God. This is a victory from God. It is amazing how passive the people are in all of this. They get the rewards. They are the conquerors, but they have done nothing Nothing. They neither prayed for the wonders and signs. They didn't magic them out of nothing. They didn't buy them or bring them about by their own mites. They did nothing. The only time that the people have been mentioned was earlier when things started to go bad. They kind of grumbled and mumbled, and then they fall out of the picture. The only thing we know about them is that certain things didn't happen to them. Did the flies go on them? No. But that's all we hear. We don't hear of them doing almost anything at all. And yet, God's graciousness gives them this victory. They are the ones who are going to go around Egypt doing a victory lap tonight before they hit the road. It is worth bringing up before us time and time again 
The salvation of the Lord over his people is an entirely gracious phenomenon. It has nothing to do with anything that you have done. You haven't earned it. You haven't bought it. You haven't prepared for it. You did nothing. You didn't design the plan of rescue. You didn't didn't manifest the word of God on your own. As Paul might say, you didn't reach up into heaven and bring Christ down, nor did you reach down into Hades and bring him up for the dead. You did not proclaim the good news to yourself. You didn't gin up the faith that you needed. Paul says that's a gift. You didn't stand before God and argue for your own justification. You didn't tell God that you should be justified because of that. Jesus Christ did that for you. You didn't cut open your chest and give yourself the new heart that you needed. You didn't earn the right to have the Spirit indwell you. You did nothing, friend. This past Thursday was Harley's birthday. He turned two. I've been trying to get him to say, I'm two. It sounds like that, but only if you really, really squint and listen hard. We did what we normally do for kids. Had a couple of small gifts. Made him cupcakes. Small little cupcake, blue frosting on top. It's pretty cute. We placed it in front of him. Harley looked at it. He said, go ahead and eat. He just, he looked at the thing. We don't eat cupcakes very often. So it's understandable that he was a little weirded out. But he said, grab it. And, and Isaac was taking his hand and like moving it toward it. And he's like, no, nah, I ain't touching that. But instead, he did this dippy bird thing. You know that little bird that kind of comes down and it bobs and then it comes back up? He, he held his hands out to the side and, and said, I'll, I'll just eat it like this, and kind of went down and like licked the frosting off the top of it. It was hilarious. Friends, Harley enjoyed that cupcake. He laughed about it. He enjoyed it. He didn't think of the idea of a cupcake. He didn't ask for Lily to make it. He didn't gather the ingredients to make it. He didn't put them together and bake them. He didn't decorate them and put the frosting on He didn't cook them. He didn't even pick the stinking thing up off of his plate. And Harley did more to earn that cupcake than you and I do to earn our salvation. It seems a simple thing to put that before us time and time again. But we need it. We're prideful people. We're arrogant people. We have done nothing to earn our salvation before God. God has done all of it. The victory that we get is wholly and completely from God. Fourth, this is a victory with a harvest. This victory comes with a harvest. It's a small thing, but even here, the grace of God is manifested in the heart of the Old Testament that he desires not simply to save Israel, but to bring in the world We've already noted that the Egyptians are indeed the enemies of the Israelites. They are the enemies, not just Pharaoh. Pharaoh stands at the apex, but the people of Egypt were quite steadfastly the enemies. They were the ones who ruthlessly enslaved the people. Pharaoh didn't do that on his own, but once Pharaoh gave them the say-so, the Egyptians were hook, line, and sinker in with it. They said, we can enslave them, let's do this. They were ruthless about it. That, That idea puts them squarely in the crosshairs for God's justice. God hates his people being messed with. Just this week, 
We had prayer meeting. We read from Psalm 79. These are the words that we read. This is typical of the Psalms. When God's people have devastation brought upon them. Psalm 79, 10 through 12. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. To be an enemy of the people of God is to be an enemy of the people, and the Egyptians were quite clearly the enemies of God and the people. And yet, with just one small reference and a little bit of unveiling of information, God makes it clear that enemies are still welcomed by his grace. Notice what verse 38 says in chapter 12. He already talked about all of the massive number of people coming out, 600,000 men besides women and children. There's a huge mass of people coming out of Egypt. And then it says in the next line, a mixed multitude also went up with them. So this isn't just the Israelite men and women. There are other people who are not Israelite coming out of Egypt with Moses and with Aaron and with all of the other people. You have to think that these were, well, Egyptians. They were alienated from God. They were opposed to not only his wrath, but instead they turned to him. They aligned themselves with his people and have come to know his favor. That's why they're called a mixed multitude here. They're no longer Egyptians. They've left Egypt. They're not Egyptian anymore. There's something altogether new. They are called to be with a foreign people, to go to a foreign place, to serve a God they have only just met, and yet they go. They go because they see this God is not like the other gods. This God protects his people, he watches over his people, he cares about his people, and again, they will gladly take on the wrath of Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt to serve this God because he clearly stands above all of them. This is God's intention all along. You'll notice that he gives instructions for the Passover just after this. He's already given instructions for the Passover. You might wonder, why is he giving Passover instructions again? But the instructions here for the Passover are all about who can take them. Because now the Passover is not just for natural-born Israelite citizens. It's not just for people who can track their lineage all the way back to Abraham. But now you've got a mixed multitude coming out. So he talks about the foreigners. No foreigner can eat it. If you are a foreigner, eating the Passover is right out. He says, but if they're circumcised, them and their household they can eat, they can partake, and they can celebrate. He is not a foreigner anymore. He is simply, as he puts it, a native of the land. In other words, any man who stands with his family as an Israelite, proud of his lineage, can trace it back generation after generation after generation, back to the very person of Abraham himself stands shoulder to shoulder, brother to brother, with the man who only a day before was nothing but an enemy of the people of God. You treat him no different. He doesn't wait to take the Passover. He doesn't wait to celebrate with you. When he's circumcised, he is 
one of you. This is as it is today. It's fine to plead with people as a demonstration of our love for them, of our care for them. We should know we can't plead people in. Here in the Exodus, it was simply a demonstration of God's power and his might that brought people in. It is a simple declaration that he is God and there is no other. The truth of God's word worked through with the love of the Spirit brings God's people home. The wonder of the cross should leave them with no other choice. Who else has the power to give life to the dead? Who else can forgive our sins? As the hymnist says, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It is victory with a harvest. Fifth, there is victory with remembrance as well. The beginning of chapter 13, we have two distinct additions to the remembrance of the Passover. First, the consecration of the firstborn, and secondly, the feast of unleavened bread. Consecration of the firstborn is marked out in verses 1 through 2, and then again in 11 through 16. The idea is pretty simple. God protected the Israelites' firstborn. Not all of the Israelites were going to die, remember, but the firstborn. So God specifically watched over them and protected them. And he said, because I protected them, because I allowed them to live, they are mine. You will always give them to me. It's a goat or a lamb. You sacrifice it. If it is your son, you sacrifice a lamb in its stead. But you redeem them. This event was exactly the kind of remembrance that was always to be put before them. Not just, not just when Passover came around year after year after year, but every time a new generation was to come, that generation was to be reminded, I saved you from Egypt. It's interesting. You read verse 8. Your sons are going to do this in the future. They're going to ask you. And imagine you're three generations removed. Imagine that you're four generations removed. You've, you've now been settled in the land of Canaan, which is now Israel for some time. You're going to start doing the Passover. Your son comes up to you, and you want to be as scriptural as possible. You read these words, and he says, why are we doing this? And you say, along with what Scripture says in verse 8, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. My son looks at you and says, that's weird, Dad. You've never been out of the city, man. You say, I know. But God delivers us all out of Egypt, son. The whole point of saying it like that is to make it clear and evident that this is not a one-time salvation. This is a salvation that God continues to bring forward to his people, that he will save them from those things that enslave them. Every bit of new life, every new generation was to remind Israel, God has saved us. Then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Scripture makes so much of the unleavened bread. It's very strange. I think if, it's always helpful to think, what, what would I consider to be the greatest bit of the Passover, the most important bit of the Passover? And then you would expect that the most important bit of the Passover is the thing that you would emphasize the most. And so you would expect it to be the killing of the lamb, sacrificial lamb being slain, maybe the applying of the blood 
to the lintel and the doorpost. That, that would be the thing that God would give most attention to. But the thing that God gives the most attention to repeatedly and continually isn't the killing of the lamb. It's not the, the blood on the lintels. It's unleavened bread. This, this incident that, that apparently just happens because of the haste of everything. It's not like the Israelites weren't planning on leavening their bread. They wanted to leaven their bread. Leavened bread is way better than unleavened bread. That's why they, they were trying to, but they didn't have time to let it leaven. They just had to pack the stuff up and leave. Why does this sort of incidental thing become prominent? The feast does underscore, as we've just read in verse 8, the unprecedented acts of God, that, that the people were not truly prepared for what was going to happen. That it kind of caught them off guard. And so there is this picture of haste that's associated with it. The interesting thing is that the use of leaven, the picture that we get of leaven throughout the rest of Scripture is not so much of haste, but of holiness. So Jesus, Matthew 16, warns his disciples of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, says this, talking about a man who is in the church, a standing member in the church who is nevertheless publicly known as guilty of gross sexual immorality. Paul says this, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He brings up, it's clear that Paul isn't just like, you know, this illustration of leaven working its way through the whole lump is super helpful to talk about how sin is just kind of pervasive and it goes through everything. It's clear that that is actually very true. It is a helpful illustration. But the fact that he goes out of his way to mention the Passover in this means that there's something about holiness that is connected directly to what Israel is doing. What would it mean for them to have had leavened bread? It means that they would have had to stay in Egypt and wait for the leaven to work. They had been waiting for generations to be free. They knew the pain of slavery and the hardship it's placed on the shoulders of their people. They've seen it break their husbands and their sons. And now they're going to say, but, 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 mid-morning's fine. We just need a little bit of air in our dough. Imagine a prisoner being set free. The warden comes and opens up the cell. Hands you back your street clothes. You get to go out and smell the free air. You say, well, yeah, yeah, that's all great, but I'm in the middle of a ferocious game of checkers with Carl McStrangley here, and even though he's a murderer, I would like to finish this before I go, go out free. He says, that's not going to happen. You say, bye, Carl. See ya. Hopefully never again. And you go. You go because that's freedom. It's freedom that you care about, freedom that you've longed for. You don't stay and piddle around with the toys of the world. That's exactly what leaven means. For them to have leaven was to stay in Egypt. For them to have unleavened bread means that they fled for their lives. This remembrance is for us. 
God in Christ has not just ransomed the firstborn, but all of us through the death of his firstborn. The same thing that he refused, a penalty that he refused to allow Abraham to pay, and then he, he refuses to allow his own people to pay. He himself pays, both as father and as son. They together know the pain that he kept the Israelites from understanding. By a weekly remembrance of the death of Christ. We have this reality placed before us in the forefront of our mind. You've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Your price has been paid. Every time you purchase something, every time you buy something, every time you lay down a dollar bill or you get out your credit card, you ought to remember, Christ has bought me. Every time you hear of another baby being born, God has done that for me. He has made me new. So we're also to remember the bread. Not just because it signals our haste, the unprecedented nature of our salvation, which certainly it does, but because it signals our turning our backs on Egypt, turning the back on the pressures and the nature and the ways of thinking of this world so that we might, in Paul's words, not be conformed to this age but transformed by the renewing of our mind. These are not ancient practices. They are to be signs on our hands and frontlets between our eyes. They are to be things that are ever present before us so that we would never forget our God has saved us from this present evil age so we flee. It is victory worth remembering. Lastly, it's victory worth repeating. As we have said all along, this is the picture that Exodus gives us of our salvation, but it is just that. It is a picture. The reality, honestly, ought to be vastly greater and more magnificent. Louis Zamperini did actually make it home. He did step foot on the soil of California. And he found out that his salvation was not full. He was pulled once again out of the fire, back into another frying pan. Simply, this time it was alcoholism, an intense and overriding anger. Things consumed him pushing his marriage to the very brink, almost wrecking his family. But he was, in the end, freed again. Not by the ending of a war, but by the coming of a savior. He heard the gospel, Billy Graham crusade, that changed his life. We are unlikely, I pray that you are unlikely, to ever have to know what it's like to be rid of the terror of the ocean or the torture of guards, to know what it's like to be freed from the bonds of slavery and the evil taskmasters that stand over you and beat you and berate you. All of us, though, have experienced something more than just the shadow we have experienced the reality and the joys 
and the exaltation of the Israelites at what has happened to them should be minor compared to what we sing. Because our reality is greater. God has not given us simple freedom from the humans that stand over us, but from our own selves. He has freed us from our sin. He has freedom from, from the, the enslavement that we had to the very things of this world, that we can go beyond the things of this world to know our God as he truly exists, to see him, even as we have said, face to face today. We might not be able to understand the liberation and joy felt by the Israelites here. But we can do one better. For their victory was not just worth repeating, but completing. We know the liberation and joy of our Lord, who has perfectly and one day will bring to completion, freeing us from the power of sin and death by means of his cross. Let us pray. Father, we have experienced such a great salvation. So we pray that you might seal that event on our heart. Let us know the wonder and the beauty of what we confess. The elation that was so easily felt by these Israelites would pass in mere weeks and then never be true of us. Let our praise and worship of you be new every morning, rising with the very mercy of our God. And may the name of Jesus Christ be as honey on our lips and sweetness to our souls. We ask these things in his name for our good and for your glory. Amen.